seat. Well, it's not very common to begin a sermon with a confession, but I must confess that there are certain places in the Word of God, all the Word of God is holy and, and perfect, but there are certain places in the Word of God uh, that you feel like holies, uh, like the temple had a, was holy, but there was a holy of holies place inside of it. And some places in the, the Word of God feel like that. And our text this morning does feel like one of those holy of holies place. Preaching from the whole of the Word of God is difficult from any place in the whole of the Word of God. But these passages, I think, uh, make, it as, make me feel like unworthy to the nth degree to expound them. Because they are beyond human capacity. They are beyond the realm of imagination. The promises contained in them particular this passage, this prayer, which Paul prays for the, for the Ephesians, this prayer is sublime. It's perhaps, I don't know, if not the most, in the top three of the most sublime prayers uttered in Scripture. Paul has been developing this theme of, of the Christian life and how we belong to the body, uh, the church, and how we are intimately and vitally connected to Christ the head. And because of that, that we enjoy the infinite riches of Christ, the unspeakable, unsearchable riches of Christ. And now after he has expounded all of this, just before he begins to set some practical uh, applications to these truths, he prays. He turns to God and he prays that God would grant us to know these things and to live in light of these truths. It's the second prayer that Paul utters in this letter. The first one, perhaps you still remember, was in chapter 1, where Paul says, I believe in verse 14, um, no, verse 15, uh, where Paul says, after he heard of the faith of the Ephesians, and their love for all the saints, he didn't cease to give thanks to God, praying for them that the Lord would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And now in this second prayer, it's as if Paul builds on that prayer for wisdom and knowledge, for wisdom and revelation, and he says that God not only would give you to know these things, but to live in light of these truths. And that's where we see from verse uh, from chapter 3, verse 14, to the end of the book. That's, this is a, a kind of a pivotal uh, passage in the, in the book of Ephesians because now Paul is going to go from uh, the indicative, telling them what, to, what, what the truth is, to the imperative, telling them how to live in light of that truth. That's from verse 14 of chapter 3 to the end in chapter 6. It's very helpful to have a broad knowledge, a deep understanding of biblical doctrines. But what Paul is now going to tell us is that that is not enough. As if it is just an academical endeavor to know these truths. No, we need to know them and to live in light of them. Certainly there is no greater privilege than to be a Christian, Paul says. There is nothing more glorious than to know that we are in Christ, that we know that Christ is the only 
true living God. But now, in light of this great privilege, you must show the whole world the Christ whom you serve. That's what Paul is concerned from now to the end of the book of Ephesians. And I've titled this, the sermon this morning, Rooted and Grounded. And I have three points that I want to highlight to bring uh, as we go through this passage. Three headers. Firstly, we'll look at the foundation of prayer, verse 14 and 15. The foundation of Paul's prayer. Secondly, we'll look at the petitions of the prayer. That's from verse 16 to verse 19. And thirdly, finally, we'll look from verse 21 and, uh, 20 and 21 at the doxology, the words of praise with which Paul concludes this prayer. So firstly, the foundation of prayer. What is the motivation behind Paul's prayer? There are two motivations that Paul tells us. Firstly, the motivation is, as Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the reason. He already gave, has given us the reason, that is. What reason is that? Well, as we've looked uh, in, the, in the past two sermons, in the past two weeks, from verse 2 to verse 13, it, it, it's a parenthesis. Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, and he opens a parenthesis and he goes into uh, explaining his ministry. We've looked at the last couple of weeks. So very much the, the reason why Paul is praying this prayer is connected to the end of chapter 2, to what he was saying at the end of chapter 2. And what was Paul telling the believers at the end of chapter 2? He was telling them that they were a temple, that they were being built up by God, being built together for a dwelling place of God. And mark these words. They are being built for a dwelling place of God because this comes up again in the prayer. The, the first reason why Paul prays in this way is because of what God has already revealed. And this is not in this incidental. And this is not um, with no teaching for us. This is insightful. In passing, what Paul teaches us in chapter 3 in this prayer is that we are to pray for those things that God purposes to do in our lives. We are to pray in a consistent manner to what God has revealed in his word. Paul says that God has revealed in these latter days that the, the mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles have been joined into one family, one nation, one temple. They are being built together. Uh, there's no longer a wall of separation. And Paul then goes on to say, for this reason, I pray, I bow my knees. Because I now know what God is doing. I now, we now know the revel from, from special revelation what God is intending to do. We are to pray consistently with God's revealed will. Incidentally, that's why so many of us sometimes feel we pray and we don't get what we pray for. I would submit to you that most often, if not always, we are praying for things that God has not revealed to us that he seeks to accomplish. 
We think of prayer as if we're twisting God's arm to do something that he doesn't want to do. We think of prayer as God has to do it because I prayed fervently. I prayed zealously. God has to give me this that I'm praying for. God has to give me this particular uh, deliverance in my job, in my family, because I prayed for it. God is uh, bound to give it to me. But it's, that's not how prayer works. I don't need to tell you this. God is not a servant of ours to do uh, or to act at our bidding. If we learn anything from Paul's prayer is that Paul is praying consistently to with what God has already said that he would do. Paul is praying that God would fulfill, would uh, grant that his promises would be fulfilled in the life of the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, God's interests, let me put it like this, God's interests must be our interests in our prayers. Because if we are God's, what is our number one uh, desire? That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And Paul here prays in that manner. Paul is praying that God's will would be fulfilled in the church in Ephesus, as God himself revealed he wanted to do, he wants to do, and will do, God, Paul is praying that this would happen. And brothers and sisters, what is it that God wants for us? Let me be brutally honest here, or crystal clear. God is more concerned about our holiness. He wants us to be holy, like he is holy, than he is concerned about our comfort. So often our prayers are prayers not to do with the advancement of the kingdom uh, in the church, in our lives, the, the being transformed and conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Our prayers are mostly, or, or so often the, our prayers are about how uh, we want to live comfortably, how we want to have uh, peace uh, uh, and uh, material well-being. But God is more concerned about our holiness that's his number one will for us. He doesn't want us to feel self-sufficient. He doesn't want us to feel, uh, uh, to have our happiness rooted and grounded in the, in the passing pleasures of this world. So in prayer, we must ask for those things consistent with God's word. And that's the number one uh, reason why Paul prays this prayer. But there is a second reason that roots and grounds this, that founds, uh, that there is the foundation for Paul's prayer here. In verse 13, he says, for this reason, uh, in verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second element that grounds the, the, the prayer of Paul is the fatherhood of God. Not only that God has revealed his will, and Paul prays for this, but that God is, has revealed himself to be a father to his children. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. There is a confidence inherent to this, to this realization, a boldness that, that propels us to come and plead for, for, for his blessing, to come and plead for him to, uh, to help us. He's a loving father. He cares for his children. He cares for each of his children more than we care for ourselves. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he uses this same uh, language to, to 
entices to encourage us to pray and to seek and to ask and to knock. He says, what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? There is a wonderful promise in the fatherhood of God that if we ask for good things, and we are not left to wonder what those good things are in Scripture. Scripture is clear what are the good things that are, good, that, that are beneficial for us eternally. That if we ask for them, God will not give us bad things. That God will grant us the bread. That God will grant us the fish, metaphorically speaking, that we need for our sustenance. Where are the good things if not to grow in holiness, in, in Christ-likeness, in godliness? Why aren't we asking for, that, uh, for those things more and more? If God has promised that you will give them. Brethren, he is a father to us. That is the foundation, of one of the, the second foundation of this prayer. But let me just highlight this as well as we, before we move on to the petitions. Note that Paul approaches with confidence, but there is something of respect. There is something of, of uh, reverence, something of humility as well. He bows his knees. Not only he comes to the Father with boldness and confidence, but he also knows he's coming before the great God, the creator of heavens and the earth, the almighty one. And he bows his knees. Again, I don't think I need to emphasize this, but I'll say it. This is not prescribing necessarily a, a one way of praying, the physical posture. It is good for us to pray on our knees every once in a while, perhaps. But it's more about this, the heart attitude, the humility as we approach uh, God in prayer, it is a recognition that the one to whom we are coming is far superior, far greater. He alone is God. And he needs to be approached with confidence, yes, but not with self-confidence. That's perhaps how I want to express it. We approach him with confidence, but it's not because we believe ourselves to be worthy to be in his presence. Not with self-confidence, but with Christ-given confidence that he bought us. As Paul already said in this, in this letter, he is the one that granted us access to God. And that's how our Lord taught us to pray. That's how Christ taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, confidence in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is the reverence, there is the recognition that yes, he is our father, but he is also the king of glory. So that's the grounding of Paul's prayer. Let us look, secondly, at the petitions. There are three petitions in, uh, from verse uh, 16 onwards. Three petitions, 16 to verse 19. And each of these petitions, they are not self uh, isolated in themselves but they build on each other as we'll see uh, they feed off the lot uh, of the last one and they demonstrate or they 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 petition further they build on each other so the first one first of all paul prays 
that the believers in Ephesus and we and every believer should be strengthened with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in them. And I added here a, a word, and I'll explain it comfortably, that Christ may dwell in them comfortably. It is a wonderful petition. It is, what, it is a petition that is uh, unspeakable almost, that we may be strengthened, Paul says, with power, with might, through his spirit in the inner man. That we may be strengthened. Let me just read the, 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 the beginning of 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. What a wonderful promise. It's according to the riches of his glory. And we've already spoken about this. How rich is God? How rich is God? He's infinitely rich. He is the owner of the heavens and the earth. He is rich in power. He is rich in grace and mercy. There is no limit to his riches. It's the unspeakable, uh, unsearchable, uncontainable riches that Paul speaks of uh, in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8. It's so according to those riches. And I don't think I'm reading too much into it. When, God, when Paul says that God would grant according to his riches... It is important to mark the according. And I'll illustrate this. God does not grant us out of his riches. But according to his riches is a world of a difference. If a rich man gives someone, a, a poor beggar out of his riches, he can give him anywhere from one penny to one million. It's out of his riches. But if a rich man gives to a beggar on the street according to his riches, one must expect a lot because it is according to the, to the riches. Let me illustrate this further. Let's say you have a friend. He's a millionaire, a billionaire. He's, he's Elon Musk kind of rich. And your birthday is coming up. And he turns to you and he says... Well, I want to treat you. I want to please you for your birthday. I'm going to take you to a restaurant, and I want you to ask whatever you want, but I want you to ask uh, for whatever you want according to my riches. It's my treat for you. Please ask according to my riches. I don't know if any of us would dare to, to ask for a beans on toast, a plate of beans on toast, would we? It would be insulting to the riches of the person he's asked to are you saying i'm poor are you saying i'm not i don't want to give it to you no you would ask according to his riches and that's what what the the idea here of the according god that he would grant us according to his riches and what are the riches of christ again what are the riches of god uh, for us in christ but that it, but that he is rich in mercy that he is rich in, in power. There is nothing that his mercy uh, will not uh, cover. There is nothing that his grace will not erase. There is nothing that his power is unable uh, to perform. Everything is according to his riches. Paul asks, or Paul knows that he's approaching a great and generous God. So he asks, as we will see, Great 
and wonderful things. So what does he ask? Now, the petition proper, that he would grant you, according to the riches of your to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Again, let us remember that Paul's interest in the prayer is God's interest. So what does that mean, to be strengthened with might, with power in the inner man? Well, perhaps if we look at verse 17, that makes a little bit more sense. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To be strengthened with power, with might, through his spirit in the inner man is of a consequence that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. That the inner man is transformed in such a way that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I'll, I'll put the comfortably here. Because that will make sense. It, it is a strange request. Let's be honest, Christians here, we know that it is a strange request. So is Paul uh, saying that the Ephesians don't already have Christ dwelling in their hearts? Isn't that the first, uh, one of the first things that happens when a believer is regenerated, that the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in them? As Romans uh, chapter 8 says, what does Paul mean that Christ would dwell in their hearts if they're already Christians? Perhaps the best way to understand this is to, to look at the original Greek. The word there for dwell is a strong word. It is a word that conveys much more than just living. It is a, wor a word that conveys uh, something of making it your own personal abode, of establishing yourself. He says it's as if Paul is praying that Christ may establish himself in their hearts. It's to make that place a home. It's to take up residence. That's the strongness. That's the emphasis of the verb there. Perhaps the best way to, for us to understand this is by way of illustration again. Let's say a couple, through their hard-earned uh, effort, saves up money, buys a house, but because they were not well off, they couldn't buy the house of their dreams, but they bought a, a house in disrepair. They bought a house with hideous wallpaper, with a, a, a kitchen that is dysfunctional, every cupboard, every door in every cupboard uh, uh, creaks, uh, is, uh, squeak, makes noise, and they're they are hanging from just one of the hinges. You go, you go into the bathroom, and it's leaking in the ceiling. It's full of mold. You go into the basement, and it's full of rubbish. They bought their house. The house is theirs. Is it, but is it their home? Are they comfortable there? No, but with time and with, uh, with money, eventually they'll make the house more pleasing to them. They, it will become more of a dwelling place. It will become more uh, of their home. They'll replace the hideous wallpaper. They'll fix the leaks. They'll re renovate the kitchen. They'll clear out the rubbish in the, in the, in the basement. They'll make the garden look nice. And that home becomes more and more comfortable to them, becomes their home. That is the sense here, spiritually, of what it means for Christ to dwell in us. That means for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Let's all be honest. We all know this to be true, don't we? 
when Christ first saved us, when Christ first came to uh, indwell us, he didn't find a, a nice house, a nice abode. Our basements were full of rubbish. In fact, our basements are still full of rubbish. Christ is still working in us through his power, transforming us, that we may become that dwelling place that Paul speaks of being built together as a dwelling place of God. And that's the, the, the idea here of Christ making residence, making us his own personal abode. That Christ, as I was the best way I've managed to express it, that Christ might dwell in us comfortably. That we become more and more like him. To make our inner man a dwelling place. And again, this language is uh, not the first time that Paul uses it. When he wrote to the Corinthians, um, years before he wrote to the Ephesians, he says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Although the outward man is wasting away, what does he say? The inner man is being renewed day by day. The outward man, the flesh, as we all know, judging by the gray hairs, uh, wastes away. It doesn't last forever. It, 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 it fades and it, it loses strength and it, 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 it perishes. But Paul says that the inner man, the, the, the heart, the seat of the affections, our desires, our will, the inner man is being renewed day by day. The inner man is being strengthened as the prayer here in Ephesians 3, uh, through the might of God, through his spirit. Yeah, the outward man will die, but the inner man is becoming more and more like Christ or should be becoming more and more like Christ. And I, I must pause here and ask you, do we pray like this? Do we ask these things of God? When we pray, are we asking for these things that God has revealed that he wants for us, for holiness, for, for desire, for our will, for our moral resolution to be more and more uh, holy in the sight of the Lord? Or are we praying for, for, for a car? Or are we praying for, for, for a, a better paying job, for that raise, for that? For that? Is, what is it that we are looking for in our prayers? Paul does only pray for this. He prays secondly that they would get a clear understanding of the limitless, infinite dimensions of God's love in Christ Jesus. That Christ may dwell through his spirit in your inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart, sorry, through faith. That you, this is the second petition, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That's the second prayer. That Christ's love would be known. And perhaps the best way for us to understand this is again using the Greek. Looking at two very strong verbs used here. First of all is to comprehend. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. The word for comprehend here is a word that denotes a full orbed understanding. It's not just uh, 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 knowing a little bit, it's knowing it 
fully, if you're, if you're holding it up, to comprehend is to be able to know every facet. Uh, if you have a dice, for instance, is to know every facet of the dice, to look from underneath, from, to comprehend, to, to, the word there is to fully orbed understanding. And Paul is saying that we would comprehend that love. To, that it would all, that we would grasp it in our minds. Not just with memorizing, perhaps this is the best distinction. Not just memorizing it, not just uh, knowing what right things to say, like, like in tests, some of the younger people will know this. You go to a test and you, you, you commit things to memory. And then your teacher says, instead of memorizing the, what, what the right answers are and trying to commit to memory all of these things, why don't you comprehend the, the subject? Why don't you grasp the subject? And then you don't need to memorize things. You just have grasped the whole thing. It becomes easy. You go to the exam and everything just answers, or the answers come naturally, instead of you trying to remember what is it that I memorized there. That's the idea here. It's to fully grasp, to have a correct grasp of the love of God, to understand. And the other word here, perhaps even more significant, is to know, verse 19, that we would comprehend, but that we would know it as well. And here, it's not just head knowledge. I've told you this before, but in, in, in the Bible, knowledge, uh, the verb to know, conveys something of a more intimate knowledge, something of an experiential it's not just, oh, I know that God loves me because I've read it in scripture, but it's I know that God loves me because I sense it, because I, I've, I've seen his love in action in my life. I've experienced it. I've tasted it. There's one author in writing a commentary on this passage. He, he tells his own personal story. He says that as he was a kid, uh, it was about 10 years old, he came down with a very severe illness. He was in the hospital for, for, for days. He was very close to dying at that young age. But thank God, eventually he, he recovered. He was brought home. And he tells the story that one night he, or he wakes up and there is there his, uh, his mother at his bedside. And she's crying. And he says that he asked his mom, do you, do you love me that much? He says that his mom couldn't even answer. She left uh, and, uh, uh, because she was so moved with the emotion of having her child safe and sound at home. And he says this, if you had asked me before if I knew that my, parent, my mother loved me, I would have said, yes, of course my mother loves me. That's natural to say. But now I know from experience how, I knew from experience how my mother lo loved me. I saw it, I experienced, I felt it. And that's what, God, what Paul is praying here, that God would grant us to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, is to know it experientially. Not just in our heads, not just because we've read scripture and we have a mental assent to say, yes, I've read that God loves me. No, I've experienced it. I know it. A love that passes knowledge, a love that is unspeakable. Paul uses 
I think the best, to the best of his ability, the, the, the superlatives to describe this love, it's, it's depth, it's height, it's, it's, it's length, it's width, it's, it's a love that passes knowledge. It's, never mind the, 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 even the, the paradoxical statement, to know the love that passes knowledge. But it is. God's love is, passes knowledge, but yet we can know it. We can experience it. Some clever commentators, they, they, they apply this in, in, in different ways, but they, they would say that, oh, God's love is so uh, high, uh, and high as the heaven, and, and God's uh, love is so deep that it goes down to the deepest misery of mankind. And I'm not saying they're wrong. They're just clever. I don't think that's what Paul is really trying to express here. Paul is just trying to express how, how uncontainable, how undescribable, and how, how limitless God's love is. It's that song that we, I, I think we sing in, in Sunday school. High, you cannot get over it. So low, you cannot get under it. So wide, you cannot go around it. It's that wonderful love. Another hymn writer, uh, he says that, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill? And everyone a scribe by trade? To ride the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is greater, far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest stars and reaches to the lowest color. The idea is it's limitless. It is not a creed that we learn. It is not a statement that we commit to memory. It's a... a it's a love that we need to experience, and that's what Paul is praying, that we would experience it, that we would delight in it, that it would transform our living. So how do we know it? We know it by being rooted and grounded in love. Do you follow that from the text? How is it that we know that love? By being rooted and grounded in love. How is it that you know love? By loving. How is it that you know the love of Christ? By loving Christ's people. In fact, that's what Paul even goes on to say. That's a, another way of knowing it, that you may comprehend with all the saints. This idea that you can be a Christian absent and, and disconnected, isolated from the, from the saints, what this tells us is that you cannot know the love of God. You cannot comprehend it. You cannot know it without being rooted and grounded in love, without loving without being in the company of the other saints. If you tell a young woman uh, about how the joys of, of being a mother, she doesn't have any children, she might be able to comprehend or grasp something of that motherly love. But if you come to a, a, a mother who has just had her first child, and you start talking to her about the love of mo uh, the motherly love, I, I promise you that second woman will be able to comprehend it much better. 
she'll be able to fully comprehend and, and know it because she's experiencing it. She's uh, putting it into practice. It's much easier. And that's the same idea here. Why is it that we struggle so much with the love of God? Because we're not rooted and grounded in love. We live our lives with bitterness. We, we, we have this harshness uh, to us. And I speak for myself and I speak, uh, I hope I can speak uh, for all of us. If, if that is the case, of course the love of God is, going to, is not going to be as, uh, as knowable. As for, of course the love of God will not be as comprehensible to us. And here, I'm, we need to have that rooted and groundedness in love. And Paul is clear. It is through the power of God that we know this. So it is very much a, a, a thing of prayer that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you being rooted and grounded in, your, in love may be able to comprehend. It's God that gives us the ability to be rooted and grounded in love and the ability to comprehend. But that's what we should be praying for. That's why we need to ask him of this in prayer. And the third petition, quickly, before we get to the doxology briefly, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, that each prayer, I hope you see it, each prayer builds on the, or each petition builds on the, on the previous one. It's, it's that you would have these things that you may uh, be able to comprehend. That, and then when you comprehend that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's, they flow, it's, it's three petitions, but it's one big petition at the same time. And what Paul is saying is that the fullness of God, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Perhaps the best way to understand this petition is to see other places where people are filled in Scripture. What, what does it mean to be filled in Scripture? Sometimes in scripture you, would read, you will read of someone who is filled with anger. What does that mean, that someone was filled with anger? He was overpowered by, that, by anger. Anger filled him, and now anger demonstrates itself. Or someone was filled with joy. What does that mean? That joy was so overwhelming, and it, it came to him and filled him, that now he's just oozing with joy. Everything around him is... is is transformed by that joy that filled him. Well, the same thing can be true of being filled with God. Again, it's the, that idea of becoming a dwelling place for God, that of him transforming us. To be filled with God is to start seeing things and to be so overwhelmed by, the, by God that God becomes the, the, the controlling element, the controlling aspect of our lives. It's to be completely dominated by the character of God, by his wisdom, particularly in this case, by his love. That the love of God, that fullness of the love of God would so much fill us that it becomes our second nature. It becomes natural to us. It becomes our first nature. It becomes natural to us to be loving towards one another, towards a dying world outside. That through that love, all those... Uh, instructions that we will read in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, it's motivated by that fullness of godly love.
It is a request that God would overpower us, would dominate in our lives. And it is a prayer that we must pray for ourselves as well. Not just to ourselves, but for each of us as a church. How is it that Christ said that the, the world would know us, his disciples, to be his disciples? If you love one another. And yet, so often, the Christian church, the conservative Christian church, is more known by the things we hate than the things we love. Is more known by the way we mistreat others, which profess the same Christ, and how upset and angry we are at them, than how we love one another, how patient we are with one another. I submit that to your consideration, if that is a, a Christ-like attitude. Our desire is to, more, to be more and more like God, and less and less like our Christ-less selves once were. So these are the petitions, and I'll just quickly and briefly uh, go through the doxology. Doxology means a word of praise, and, and that's where, how Paul finishes here. With a dox, uh, praise, logos, word, doxology, and that's how Paul finishes this, by presenting a word of praise. But this word of praise carries so much that is, in fact, perhaps it was at this moment in, in considering this passage that I felt overwhelmed by the passage itself, this holiest of holy of passages. Paul asks for such a great thing, and yet he says, but to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, According, again, not out of the power, but according to the power that work, works in us. Which power is it? It's that same power that Paul already described in chapter 1. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. According to that power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church. Do you think Paul asked for too much? Do you think Paul's request here is a, a, a request that is uh, too much for God? Paul says, no, it's not too much. In fact, I'll tell you what, he can do exceedingly, abundantly above what we ask or what we think. Why? Because he's infinitely rich in all of these qualities. There is no reason, brothers and sisters, for us to doubt that God can do this for us. Because I, I, I know the feeling that some of you might be feeling now. Oh, yeah, it's very easy to talk. You don't know what I'm going through. Oh, it's very easy for you to say that we should be more loving. You don't know what so-and-so said to me or what so-and-so did to me. You don't know how painful that was. Yes, I don't know. But I know this. The one who can do it is able to do it. He's willing to do it. And I know he will do it, if not before then, in, gr in glory. But why, wouldn't we, why would you want to wait for glory? God is able to do it. God is able to transform you. God is able to give you that love. You don't ne need to live life. I'll use again the same illustration. I, I do believe it is an apt one. The, 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 the world's most miserly woman. I hope I said that right. The world's most miserly woman, Hetty, something, and she, she was so rich, but yet she lived so poorly. 
She was so attached to, to, to her money and, and, and she wanted, didn't want to let go and, and she lived like a, a mis miserly woman. Don't let us not be like that. Let us not confine ourselves just because our Christian walk right now feels miserly, feels poor. It doesn't need to be that way. We can come to God and ask him to fill us with that zeal again, to restore to us that first love, to, to give us that desire for holiness once again, that we may start to walk in ways that are pleasing to him, that, we, that our house, that our life as a dwelling place for Christ might become more pleasing to him. Why do we doubt that God can do this in our lives? We have no reason to be better or despondent in our Christian life, seeing that it is Christ that has purchased us, seeing that it is the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that is at work in us, seeing that we have a heavenly Father like God is, and the whole purpose is that Him Again, I go back to the, to, the, to the subject matter of last week. The church exists for the praise of Christ, for the praise of God, so that to him, to the God the Father, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's the goal. That's why we were saved, that he will receive praises from the saints that have departed now and are in glory, from the angels that continually worship him day in and day out in his presence, from the church in this earth as we serve him. And that has collective repercussions for us. We as a church, Ridley Hall Evangelical Church, the few of us, we are that church that is to bring glory to God along with all the churches of Christ throughout this nation and throughout this world, but we as a body of his people, as this local representation of, of Christ's body, we are to bring glory in, you could say, to him be glory in, in, the, in Ridley Hall Evangelical Church by Christ Jesus to all generations. That is our responsibility. That is our number one goal. And that it should be, as Paul so aptly and beautifully portrays here, our number one prayer, our number one priority. May God use his words this day to awaken our souls, to encourage us to continue to run the race with, with, with boldness, with patience, and with independence with, to him. May God enable us as a church with each of its members to bring glory to him through Christ Jesus to all generations forever.